0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our weekly webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rubland, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a discussion of healthcare stocks and investing. My guest is Andy Acker, a portfolio manager on the healthcare team at Janice Henderson Investors. Andy was featured in a story in this weekend's Barron's Magazine on actively managed healthcare funds, and frankly, he runs one of the best. Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison also joins us today, and he will fill, fill us in, as usual, on what to watch in the markets this week and beyond. Andy and Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. Good to have you on the call.
1: Thanks, Thanks Lauren.
2: Glad to be here. Thanks, Lauren. Great to be here.
0: Wonderful. So, Andy, we like to start with the, with the honored guest, as it were, and we are all interested in healthcare around here. You're a veteran healthcare manager. You've seen a lot of market cycles, but let's face it: last year was one of the worst years in recent memory for healthcare stocks, at least those not named Lilly or Novo Nordisk. So, what happened to the sector broadly, and what are the prospects for a recovery?
2: Sure. So, so you're right. Healthcare was uh, it was a painful year for the healthcare sector overall. And I think it was due to a couple of different factors. I I think the first one is what we think of as the COVID-19 hangover, right? So the industry was on the front lines of fighting the COVID-19 pandemic um, a few years ago. We had incredible successes there really, you know, historically would take 10 years to develop a new vaccine. Fortunately, companies were able to develop highly effective vaccines in closer to 10 months. And that probably saved millions of lives. And, you know, at the peak, we had sales of over $90 billion for therapeutics and and vaccines addressing COVID-19. Now, of course, fortunately for the world, you know, the pandemic uh, phase has ended. The public health emergency ended last year. And because of that, though, we've seen substantial declines for these products. You know, some of the companies are seeing 80% declines in sales. If you think about Pfizer, as an example, in 2022, they had sales of over $100 Last year, uh, over $40 billion lower in terms of sales. And some companies, you know, I I think it really um, hid the underlying growth because even if you had um, growth of double digits in many of your product lines, if you're seeing an 80% decline in sales of therapeutics or vaccines or the life science tools that that make those products, you know, that really sort of um, masked the underlying growth. And it was one of the rare years where healthcare as a sector had declining revenue and earnings. Um, So if we fast forward to this year though, we think we're in a much better situation. Um, After that um, period of decline, I think we're mostly through that. Companies are gonna start to report revenue and earnings growth again. Um, and the valuations in the sector have come down significantly. So we see some real positives there. And then what gets us most excited about the healthcare sector and uh, and biopharmaceuticals, especially, is the acceleration of innovation that we're seeing. And I think you wouldn't know it by the stock price performance last year. But 2023 was a record year for new product approvals. In fact, we had 73 approvals just in 2023. And so that year of approvals we think will lead to a year of new product launches um, this year and in the coming years, because the other thing to keep in mind here is in healthcare and therapeutics, the life cycle is not a year or two where you have to come out with a new product every couple of years, but this product cycle tends to last for 10 years or longer. So we think we're early in a new product cycle that will drive continued growth for the sector. And in our view, that's not really all priced in.
0: So what sorts of launches are you most excited about? What are you looking for this year?
2: Sure. Well, it's hard to uh, think about the healthcare sector without thinking about the obesity market. Mm
1: -hmm. And
2: we've had some phenomenal uh, launches for companies like Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk. And we think this is going to represent one of the biggest opportunities ever in the healthcare sector in terms of new products. So, if you think about um, Lilly sales, for example, they just recently reported their fourth quarter. Uh, their products Manjaro and Zepbound, which are, are both using the underlying molecule terzepatide, they're already approaching ten billion dollars in sales, and we're barely two years—you know, not even two years—into the launches there. Um, So this is an enormous uh, global challenge, obesity, if we think about it. Over 100 million people in the United States, over 750 million people globally are overweight or obese. And that trend has just continued to grow every year. And and historically, therapeutics were not that effective. You know, maybe we could get 5% weight loss, um, potentially with some safety issues or other side effects. You know, this is the first time. We have therapeutics that can be highly effective. We're getting, you know, up to 15 to 20% weight loss. And we had believed that that would have the potential to improve clinical outcomes for patients. And we learned last year that that is indeed the case. Uh, NOVA with their SELECT trial showed that we could actually improve cardiovascular outcomes just by losing weight. In fact, they showed in that trial that they could lower the risk of heart attacks, strokes, and death by about 20%. And these companies, both Lilianovo and Novo, have a number, dozens actually, of trials in different and related indications to obesity that they're already starting to show benefits, everything from liver disease to kidney disease to heart failure. Um, and so we think these just are going to be, you know, one of the biggest markets we've ever seen. Uh, widely expected to be over $100 billion in sales by the end of the decade. And we think there will be more growth from there.
0: You know, we had a question from a listener named Stephen who wanted to know how many indications these drugs can be used for in the future. It seems like people think they're going to solve all sorts of health problems.
2: Yeah. And I don't know if solve is the right word, (laughs) I would say. um, Yeah. Because there's sometimes this um, expectation that if these uh, GLP one based drugs or what are called incretin therapeutics, that if they're successful, that you know that will crowd out all of these other market opportunities in the healthcare sector. We don't think that's the case. Um, we think there's going to be room for both. These are enormous markets. If we think about you know cardiovascular disease, for example, we've had highly effective statin based therapies for decades, and they they're very effective. Sometimes they can lead to over thirty percent reduction in heart attacks, strokes, and death. And yet there's still, you know, medical devices for all of these um, diseases. So I think there's room for both. So that that narrative we think is maybe a little bit overdone, but we are seeing um, benefits. And, you know, sort of, I mentioned a few of them. We're gonna see uh, data soon in osteoarthritis, uh, where they also have a benefit. We're gonna see things like sleep apnea, where we expect they'll also have a benefit. I mentioned liver disease, kidney disease. There are many different diseases that are associated with obesity that lead to higher healthcare costs. And so addressing this problem, you know, should lead to a number of benefits. But on the other hand, we we do have to keep in mind though that the penetration here is still tiny on a global basis. We're talking about single digits in the U.S. and low single digits globally. And there are capacity constraints that the companies are trying to address, but it will be many, many years or even decades until we you know, are starting to treat the majority of these patients.
0: What is the best way for an investor to play this? Do you keep buying Lilly stock or Novo stock or is there some other way, maybe less expensive to get on board the GLP bandwagon?
2: Sure. So, uh, you know, we own uh, Lily and Novo and our healthcare strategy, and we, we've actually owned those stocks for, for more than a decade. Um, but we are also looking at this, this market opportunity is so large that we think there will be opportunities for other companies as well. Um, in some of our strategies, including our biotech strategy um, we've had investments in some of the potential competitors. So um, one of those companies um called Versanis was actually already acquired by Lilly. Um, Another company called Karma Therapeutics was recently acquired by Roche. Um, So there will be other players we think. I I think uh, Lilly and Novo will be the dominant providers for a number of years, but eventually there will be room for others. Um, Amgen is another company that's developing a therapy. That one could be potentially once monthly uh, or even less frequently versus once quarterly injections today. Um, Companies are developing oral therapies, including Lilly. There's also other unmet needs in obesity. Um, If we think about it, you know, one of the challenges today besides capacity is that often patients are losing just as much muscle as fat. And and obviously that's not what we want. We want to lose fat and preserve the muscle. And so there are a number of combination therapies. I mentioned that one, Versanus. That was one company um, but uh, Lilly and others uh, companies like Regeneron are also working on ways of preserving muscle while losing fat. So that's you another know, one. And then, and then oral therapies as well are being developed too.
0: That, that seems to me would be the Holy grail to have oral therapies here instead of injections or, or, yeah, to that,
2: I mean, that would be terrific, you know, for a couple of reasons, obviously it's, it's easier to give, potentially you could have even more manufacturing capacity Um, That will really, I think it's ultimately going to be necessary to get this, um, you know, to markets worldwide, you know, countries like China and India, which also have obesity problems. It's going to be very difficult to get them all the way there until we have uh, oral therapies, which are in development as well.
0: You know, you mentioned a couple of deals, and I want to talk about that before we go to Ben and talk about earnings. This looks to be also the year of healthcare M&A. We had a flurry of deals that followed regulators' approval of the Amgen Horizon deal last year. What do you see ahead in the M&A department?
2: Yeah, so we've, we've been saying for a while now we were expecting a pickup in M&A activity, especially in the biotech sector. Um, and the reason is a couplefold. You know, first of all, many of the major pharmaceutical companies are facing substantial patent expirations later this decade Um, and so they're going to need additional products uh, in order to drive their revenue engines to drive revenue growth Um, these companies also are cash rich Um, many of them uh, you know combined there's hundreds of billions of of capacity to do m a and most of the innovation is actually coming from small and mid-cap biotech companies in fact 65% of the pipeline today is being developed by these small and mid-cap biotech companies. So if you want the innovation, you know, you have to go to these companies that are often not well represented in in the major market benchmarks. So that's an area that we historically have been substantially overweight. And especially, you know, over the last three years, we've had, you know, what I would think of as a a nuclear winter in biotech. So these stocks have just gone lower and lower after all of the excitement about COVID-19 and the pandemic, um, I think the market started to face the stark reality of biotech investing. And it's something we call the 90-90 rule, which refers to the clinical and commercial risks of investing in these companies. And the first element refers to the clinical risk that 90% of the drugs that begin human clinical testing will never make it all the way to market. And so, As a long investor, you're trying to find one out of 10 uh, that can make it. And and I think when there's too much optimism, you know, which happened, I think, in 2020 and early 2021, that all of these new drugs going into development, you know, many companies got funded that probably should not have. You know, many of those ended up failing and that caused, you know, the the money to just come out of the sector. And so it's been a, a long period of a bear market in biotech. But I think as we start to see you know, positive clinical data, many new drugs getting approved, and to your point a pickup in m a activity, which really um, we saw a burst of activity in the fourth quarter alone. Um, last year, there were 22 deals in the sector of over $1 billion for combined over 140 billion. That was about twice as many deals as we've seen in any year in the last decade. And it was the second highest total Um, In terms of the dollar. So I think M&A is is coming back. We've seen already a flurry of some more deals early this year, and we expect that will uh, continue as we move forward. The combination of high innovation and low valuations, you know, we think will be very positive for the sector.
1: And Andy, um, when you look at the, the M&A potential, is it going to be um, focused, do you think, on the the smaller companies? I know the uh, the Pfizer acquisition of CGen didn't seem to be uh, really welcomed by the market um, when, when that happened.
2: Yeah, I think most companies now have seen that the larger deals, you know, especially when a big pharma company buys another big pharma company, the, those deals don't tend to work out that well. Um, they're mostly about cost cutting. but what we call tuck in deals, and that could be anywhere from, you know, one to two billion up to probably 10 to 15 billion. I think that's really going to be the focus. When we talk to the management teams in the pharmaceutical industry, that's where most of the attention is. And so I'd expect the majority of the deals to be, you know, sort of that type. And that te- tends to fit us very well because. The things that pharmaceutical companies look for, which are are very similar to what we look for in our investing. We try to find companies that can change the practice of medicine by addressing high unmet medical needs. And those are the ones that we believe have blockbuster potential, meaning they can sell at least a billion dollars annually. And it's those companies that really drive 100% or more of their earnings in the industry. You know, we have to remember that it costs over a billion dollars to develop a new therapy. It costs over 300 million a year to market a new therapy. So a product that's just a, you know, a me too, that that's not a real advance will never return its cost of capital. Some of those companies can even go bankrupt. Uh, Last year, there were 18 uh, bankruptcies in the biotech industry. But if you find one that really addresses an unmet medical need that has the right target product Profile, those companies can go on to sell billions of dollars or even multiple billions of dollars. And that tends to be what the pharmaceutical companies try to acquire as well.
0: That's a good answer. And and should be, it should be a great year for the the healthcare investment bankers, even though it was a bad year for the stocks last year.
2: Although you could say they would probably prefer that we just have a bunch of really big deals because <laughs> yeah they get paid on the uh, on the dollar amount rather than the number of deals but but we prefer if they have some more work to do and and there's more deals and and last year was a was a record on that front.
0: All depends where you sit, I guess. So <laughs> Ben, I wanted to talk to you a bit about companies reporting earnings this week, and I thought we'd start with Paramount. It reports on Wednesday. The stock had a terrible 12 months. The company is laying off workers. Berkshire Hathaway dumped a third of its position. And there have been rumors that Paramount is up for sale. In the midst of all this, we'll get earnings. Will they even matter? And what are you paying attention to at Paramount?
1: Yeah, no, I, I don't think they're going to matter all that much. Um, Paramount, uh, at, at this point, I think everyone knows the end game is that uh, it's going to be bought by somebody. Um, and, and the question is, is really just two. and if you look at the business, it's just, uh, it's going to really have a tough time, um, as a standalone company in this streaming environment. One of the, uh, notes I was reading as I was preparing for this call this morning was just talking about, um, paramount streaming efforts and it compared to, um, what happened with Disney and charter when they had their standoff last year and it ended up with, uh, you know, Disney, uh, the, with charter customers getting access to uh, Disney's online Disney Plus offerings, the streaming offerings as part of their cable deals. Um, but this note was pointing out that when you look at uh, Paramount, they're, they're, it doesn't really Paramount Plus doesn't really have that much beyond uh, what it already has on, on CBS. Um, and so the, uh, the the shows that it's that are being um, presented to to viewers on Paramount Plus are things they can often get on network TV. And the other thing they have are sports. Um, but Paramount. Plus is only going for you know five dollars and ninety-nine cents, which makes it hard to have that give that value on on the cable network. So I think that there's a real issue there. Um, and even if you look at the bulls, they're all saying that uh, I mean this was from CFRA, they were writing we think shares are event driven based on a potential change of who controls the company. And that's really going to be the end game here. Um, someone will buy this, the question's gonna be when for how much?
0: And and will it be worth it when they do?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I feel for the bulls who've been holding this stock forever and watching the price just go down and down and down. And they've been arguing that it's going to get bought at some point, and it probably will. But is it going to have been worth this long wait to see it finally happen?
0: Right.
1: Uh, it doesn't seem like it.
0: Often the question with these sorts of stocks. So mm-hmm. sticking with the theme of entertainment, AMC also reports on Monday on Monday, excuse me, on Wednesday. But there's been little entertaining about the stock over the past year. This was a one time mean stock. Now it seems investors, large and small, have walked away. How do things look for AMC, the movie theater operator?
1: I mean, Sadly, I think the, the meme stock um, phenomena was probably the worst thing that could happen for AMC. Um, if you look at it, it's expanded market share. Um, in, in Last year, expanded market share. Um, and uh, Wedbush actually thinks that its market share is going to continue to grow. They're very good at what they do. They were the ones who were able to distribute the uh, Taylor Swift and Beyonce concert films, which really helped. And Wedbush, again, thinks that that's going to continue in 2024. But you also have this, uh, you know, the problem of uh, AMC just having a lot of debt at this point that uh, it really needs to pay down. Um, and it has spending that it needs to do to upgrade uh, theaters and whatnot. And it doesn't pay a dividend either. And so it just is probably one of these stocks that, you know, it's down 92% over the last 12 months. Um, it, it's probably one of these stocks is just going to be kind of stuck for a while as it tries to figure out what that next step is. How do you continue to pay down the debt? that grow the business as these things play out against each other.
0: Sounds like one of Andy's biotech stocks down
1: 92%.
0: (laughs) That's alarming. So let's look at cruising for a minute, something upbeat. The cruise line operators, as we know, had a near-death experience during COVID, but they are back to some degree, Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings reports tomorrow. What's the outlook for
1: Norwegian? Well th- this is an interesting sector to watch. They had a really nice bounce back, but that's actually been lapped at this point. Um you look at Norwegian it's down 19% this year over the past 12 months it's down 1.4%. Um and that's despite, you know, business that has been Um, you know, doing better. Um, One of the things that uh, is going to be a problem is that it it seems like uh, we're going to be listening for how the, uh, what's going on in the Middle East is impacting cruise lines. Morgan Stanley was pointing out that that might be impacting some sales. Um, And the other thing to watch for is whether, how much it is like Royal, uh, Royal Caribbean, Royal Caribbean, has um, reported already, it's actually raised its guidance twice um, um, since it was first given um, for 2024. Um, Basically, because um, uh, demand has been stronger, it was also able to refinance debt, which uh, lowered the cost of capital and is probably going to help earnings too. And the question is, is this something specific to Royal or is um, Norwegian going to be able to show the same kind of thing? Um, If it can pull off the same kind of balance Sheet repair and is seeing the same strong demand than these stocks, which have really been now going nowhere for this stock in particular, which has been going nowhere for the last 12 months. There could be upside after earnings.
0: Something to watch for sure. Now, let's talk about a company that actually got a lot of cheerleaders on Wall Street, and that's Salesforce. The company reports on Wednesday the stock is up more than 80% over the past 12 months. I think it's been a pick of Barron's Roundtable members. What's happening at Salesforce and what will you
1: be listening for? Well, it's funny because I, I read the notes on, on Salesforce and there's a lot of pessimism from the analyst community. Um, Guggenheim was saying that you know, they think that it's going to achieve its uh, revenue guidance and they think that it'll guide in line. And they're talking about just how difficult the quarter was that they're going to make up for it on um, pricing. Um, that they have been able to raise prices and there's been strong license renewals and things like that, that uh, are going to help this, Quarter. What fascinates me though is when you look at it is that the stock is up 11% this year. It's up 81% over the past 12 months. And earnings are are growing. They're expected to earn $2.27. That's going to be up from $1.68. Sales are up as well. And so, as long as it's uh, able to do this, the stock is not cheap at around 30 times, uh, but that's actually a lot lower than it was just a few years ago. So, again, there is a lot of optimism here, but when you have a stock that's up that much, but it seems like there's also a lot of pessimism heading into the print that actually could make it uh, um, those numbers uh, not only achievable, but have some upside to the stock if they if they do manage to beat.
0: So always an interesting situation to be. And I wanted to go back to Andy and talk about a couple of other healthcare stocks that you own, Andy, and that you like. We talked about Lilly to some degree. How about Vertex? This is the company developing the non-opioid painkiller. What's to like at Vertex?
2: Well, there's a lot to like a vertex, Um, you know, we've actually owned the stock uh, in our healthcare strategy for about 15 years, going back to 2009, and it's been one of the most innovative companies in the biotech sector. The real breakthrough for them has been in the field of cystic fibrosis, and they have started with one therapy and then two, and now have a triplet therapy, which is a pill, which is highly effective for treating the disease. And basically, what it does is it stabilizes the chloride channel that is really needed to get adequate fluid into your lungs, so that the uh, and other tissues in the body, so that these cystic fibrosis patients essentially can breathe and not get infections in their lung, which patients without this therapy would get. Um, the amazing thing is this therapy now is approaching ten billion in annual sales. Um, it continues to grow. And, and one of the best sources of growth that we love as investors is that it's actually improving overall survival for patients. So before this drug, you know, the median survival for patients with cystic fibrosis was in the thirties. And today now with these therapies, you know, these patients can potentially live a normal life. So that's kind of a remarkable achievement and the company continues to advance Um, They just had another triplet report, even slightly better data, and that just expands their IP, you know, out into the late 2030s. So they have a a really terrific franchise in cystic fibrosis, and we love that one, but they're making advances in other fields as well. And one of the biggest unmet medical needs today is for the treatment of acute pain. You know, I think we're all aware of the opioid crisis in America and how that has really impacted many communities. And because of that, you know, many doctors are, uh, and patients really are afraid to use opioid therapies. And so you have many patients that are suffering, you know, essentially silently in pain, and, and there's not really many good alternatives. But this company has been working, uh, actually for as long or even longer in the field of pain as they have in the field of cystic fibrosis, more than a decade. And they finally have a, we, what we believe could be a breakthrough. Um, They have a therapy that um, has now reported positive phase three data for the treatment of acute pain, which is a non-opioid therapy for pain. Um, Acute pain affects over 80 million patients per year that are getting prescriptions for acute medicines. The branded opioids um, were priced at $10 to $15 per day. And we have a billion calendar days of therapy each year. So at that price, and it could be even higher than that, We're talking about a 10 to $15 billion potential market. We think this therapy will be um, filed this year and launched next year. So that's um, one that we're excited about. And of course the company has many other therapies in development. They tend to shoot uh, for really transformative therapies. And so they have uh, in development, potential curative treatments for diseases like type one diabetes and a sickle cell disease treatment that was also recently approved by the FDA, and then they have a number of other therapies as well. So this is one that we've been excited about for a long time.
0: Is Vertex a company that could be acquiring other companies, or is it small enough to be acquired by a larger bio? Yeah. Is it be a larger pharma company, or is that not something that's part of the discussion right now?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. You know, this this is a company that is cash rich. They have over ten billion. In cash on their balance sheets. They're a strong free cash flow generator. They have high operating margins. So they could do M&A deals if they wanted to. Um, But we think they'll probably focus on those smaller tuck-in deals that I mentioned earlier. I think it's very unlikely they would do a a large transaction. Um, And we think they have adequate cash flow to start paying a dividend soon as well. Hmm. Um, although they haven't agreed to that yet. We've been trying to persuade them. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) as far as the company being acquired, you know, probably the best opportunity for that would have been a couple of years ago. You know, they had a disappointment in their pipeline and the stock was a much lower price even just, you know, a year and a half ago or so. It could still happen today and we think it represents one of the best franchises, but, you know, that's not part of our thesis. You know, we think the company on its own will perform very well. And it's it's already at around 100 billion market cap, but if they're successful in pain and other indications, you know, we're still quite excited about the stock.
0: They seem to have a lot going on. So I wanted to get to listener questions. We've had a lot of questions about artificial intelligence and healthcare and medicine. So Stephanie has asked whether you can discuss your view of where the greatest impact might be when AI is applied to the sector.
2: Sure. We we think the greatest impact is going to be in the drug discovery efforts. And it's already being applied, actually, you know, quite broadly. So I think many companies are starting to use AI to eliminate steps in drug discovery or come up with uh, better molecules that better fit the target. And I think um, as AI gets more widely applied, it's going to result in an improvement on the drug discovery side. I think where we're still a little bit more skeptical is, how it's going to impact um, drug development. Because I think there's such, um, you know, humans are such heterogeneous (laughs) uh, beings that there's so much uniqueness in each of us. And so having an AI that can calculate the impact of putting a medicine into potentially thousands of patients and all the variations that could happen, I think that is many, many years or decades away in terms of really being able to change the development process so that you know, essentially humans are not involved. Um, So I think that will be many, many years in the future, if ever. Um, And then, you know, so, but hopefully we'll get to, you know, better medicines that more directly target, uh, you know, reach their targets that could result hopefully in somewhat faster development over time. But I think it's going to be many years till we see that change. And right now, I think in the healthcare sector, at least AI represents a lot of hype. Um, you have some companies that say, oh, we use AI in our drug discovery, and then they get, you know, multiple billions uh, value in terms of valuations. And for us, it always comes back to each individual molecule and whether it's going to be successful. And, and going through the drug development process is still quite lengthy and, and fraught with hazard. So I guess I wouldn't jump on the bandwagon too soon and say, you know, there's going to be unique companies that use AI. I think it's going to be more of a broad based tool. That will help the entire industry.
0: There's a lot to understand there and a lot we will understand as it develops further. To switch gears, we have a question from Bob about the election and will the election year or presumably the outcome of the election damage any part of the healthcare industry? I would broaden the question and say, what are some of the possible impacts of the election on healthcare?
2: Well, so as uh, healthcare investors, well, we're always used to the elections causing a lot of volatility in our stocks. I think what's different this time is, is we're talking about you know the two leading candidates both having already been president for four years. That's a very unusual situation that at least I can't remember seeing before. But what that means is we already sort of know what what these candidates are going to do. They've been you know they can say a lot of things, but we already know what they've done. And so I think the broad expectation is it's not going to be much different from what we've seen the first time. Now, under the Biden administration, we did have one policy that was approved called the IRA, which is the Inflation Reduction Act, and that does have um, some impacts on the healthcare sector. I would say both positive and negative. Um, on the negative side, I think it's you know well understood that we have drug price negotiation now. Um, And the first drugs that are being negotiated, you know, that impact will start to be felt in 2026. Um, However, those are products that were already expected to face generic competition relatively soon afterwards anyway. So that really mitigates the impact. And on the positive side, I think probably less well understood is that for seniors now, we have um, essentially limited the amount of -of out-of-pocket costs for, for patients and previously, previous to this year, you know, patients that needed a life-saving cancer therapy, for example, had an unlimited out-of-pocket spend. You know, they may have to spend five or $10,000 per year out-of-pocket for a life-saving uh, cancer therapy. That changes. Uh, that changed actually beginning on January 1st, where now the limit is uh, no matter how many therapies you're on, the out-of-pocket expense can't be more than about $3,000 this year. And next year, that will go to $2,000 out of pocket. And so we who, think that will actually improve access to medicines. And we think that'll be great for patients and also for demand for healthcare products.
0: So who pays if the cost goes down for patients?
2: Yeah, it will be a combination of um, the, the pharmaceutical industry, health insurers, and the government. Um, but the key point is that patients will be able to afford their medicines, mm-hmm. which previously was not always the case. In fact, today, up to 30% of prescriptions at the pharmacy are not filled because of the cost of the copays, the out-of-pocket expense. And so this will really help to solve that problem for seniors. And I think it would be great if we could expand that for the entire population. Because, you know, if a patient needs a certain therapy and it's prescribed by their physician, they should always be able to get that therapy, and and the cost should not be the reason why they can't get it.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, we had a question from Matt about the um, GLP one drugs. He said you mentioned the loss uh, the loss of muscle from taking GLP one drugs. Are there other adverse events that could trigger a sell off or a pullback in the stocks of these drug companies? In
2: other well, words, you know, what side sure. of Yeah, as far as um adverse events, you know, we do know that there are tolerability issues with these therapies that, you know, mostly GI issues like nausea and vomiting. They tend to be more acute um, when patients start therapy or when they titrate up on the therapy. Um, But um, that being said, you know, there are still millions of patients that are getting these and the demand far exceeds the supply. We've also seen from the the Novo Select trial last year that that represented 18,000 patients treated for about five years. So I think we have a pretty good sense now for the safety profile. It's often also not well understood that these GLP-1 therapies, the, the first of these came out in 2005. So these have been on the market now for almost two decades. So I think we have a pretty good sense of the safety profile. There are some rare events but I don't think we're going to be surprised by anything at at this point, at least on the safety side. Mm -hmm. So I think probably, you know, the closest following will be on competitive drugs. Will there be one, you know, that, that has some attributes that might be favorable, but also Lily and Novo are not sitting still. They're both developing follow-on compounds that might be even more advantageous in terms of the weight loss or the tolerability or the convenience if we're talking about oral therapies or maybe once monthly therapy. So, We think those two companies will remain the market leaders, but there will also be room for other companies uh, because the market opportunity is just that large. But, you know, given the move up in these stocks, you know, I I would always say a pullback at at any time, you know, probably should be expected. Um, You know, you can't expect these stocks will always go straight up.
0: I think Ben and I feel that way about the broader market. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Agreed. There.
0: All right. I wanted to close just by asking you maybe 30 seconds on each stock, two smaller biotech stocks that you're invested in, that you said you'd be willing to talk about, Madrigal Pharmaceuticals and Vaxite. Can you just tell us briefly what's the attraction of these two names?
2: Sure. So, so Madrigal is a, is a leader in the field of Nash or fatty liver disease. This affects over 10 million people in the US who have a, a moderate to severe form of this, which really puts them at risk of, of liver failure and liver transplant. Um, ICER, which is the Institute for Clinical Effectiveness Research, which is an independent think tank, you know, has said that Modrigal's drug could be cost-effective at up to forty dollars to $50,000 per patient per year. Now, although there's 10 million patients, there are zero therapies approved. There's never been a treatment before it indicated for the field of NASH. And we think uh, that Modrigal could be the first. In fact, they're up for FDA ac- action uh, next month on March 14th. Um, and if approved, you know, we think this represents a multi-billion-dollar opportunity that is not, you know, still not captured in the stock price. Um, This is one of those companies that is on the other side of the GLP-1 narrative that, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a there's a view that the GLP-1s will take over the entire market. And so there's no room for other therapies. But when we think of other large metabolic diseases like diabetes, heart failure, hypertension, there's always been multiple classes of drugs that have been successful. So we don't think it's going to be a one size fits all for these uh, patients. And there's plenty of opportunities for other companies as well. Um, and then the other one is Vaxite. Um, This is a company that uh, we have owned actually since before the company was public. It was a, a pre-IPO crossover investment that we co-led um, here at Janice Henderson. And that's a company that has a technology for the treatment of pneumonia, which is one of the leading causes of death in children under five globally. And this is a, a disease that's caused by a bacteria called pneumococcus, and there are literally, um, you know, there's about 100 different varieties of that bacteria. And so these vaccines um, have to cover the different strains in order to be effective. And, and typically what we've seen is this has been a, a winner take all or a winner take most market. Whoever ha- covers the most strains tends to win in the marketplace. And, and this is a market that's been um, really led by Pfizer with their Prevnar franchise. Originally, they had Prevnar 7. Uh, then they uh, had Prevnar-13, and then now we have Prevnar-20, which is still dominating the market. But um, what happens is the, the causes of the um, disease tend to change over time. So a little bit like whack-a-mole, if you knock down one of the strains, then the other ones tend to come up. And the current technology you know, really doesn't allow you to get much past 20 different strains. Um, but this little company called Backsite Um, has a new technology that we think can allow them to cover many more strains. Um, Last year, they reported on um, early data for their, what they call Vax24, which covers 24 strains in a head-to-head phase two mid-stage trial. That one looked better on 16 of the 20 strains um, going head-to-head against Pfizer's Prevnar 20. And later this year, they're going to have a Vax31 that will cover 31 versions um, and the reason that's important is Prevnar 20 today covers about 50% of the disease-causing strains, where this Vax31 could cover 95% of the strains that cause disease. So we think that will be, um, if positive, that will be uh, a meaningful event for the stock. And this today is a $7 billion market that's expected to grow to over $10 billion. And we think Backside has the potential to become the future market leader.
0: So I just want to give listeners the tickers for these stocks because they're not as familiar as Pfizer and Lilly. Madrigal is MDGL and Vaxite is PCVX. And with that, Andy, I want to thank you for this tremendous amount of information. Well, I great, to today. great to
2: be here. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And Ben as well, thank you for your insights into companies reporting this week. Thanks, Lauren. So if you are interested in healthcare investing, Barron's is planning a virtual live event on March 5th, Tapping into the Senior Economy. I'll be moderating a panel with two healthcare investment specialists, Deborah Netchert of Jenison Associates and Marshall Gordon of Clearbridge, and my colleague Reshma Kapadia will be speaking with Ken Dichtwald of AgeWave and Carolyn McClanahan, the founder of Life Planning Partners. The event takes place at noon on March 5th, and I believe we have the registration link in the chat if you're interested in that. Before then, however, please join us again next Monday on Barron's Live, when Ben and I will be speaking with Christopher Rossbeck, Chief Investment Officer of J. Stern & Company. Stern is a private investment partnership based in Europe with offices in New York Chris takes a long-term approach to investing that I think you'll find interesting. I certainly did when I spoke with him last. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and have a good week. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.